0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Education and Resources Podcast. My name is David Petrak, a member here of the Teaching Ministry Team at City Church Heights. And our topic today is joy. If you've been tracking with your ministry team throughout the month of November, you'll know that we've been talking and discussing and reflecting on uh, joy, joy being the second in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, with me today to help us reflect and talk about joy is my guest, Justin Crisp. Welcome to the podcast, Justin.
1: Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So, Justin, let me just introduce you to our listeners. Justin is Associate Rector and Theologian-in-Residence at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut, He's also a lecturer at Berkeley Divinity School at Yale, where he teaches Anglican and Episcopal History and Theology. He's also done some writing. He's written a chapter titled Lives of Theologians in a book authored by Miroslav Wolf and Matthew Krasman, titled For the Life of the World, Theology That Makes a Difference, a book that won the 2020 Christianity Today Book Award. But today we'll be talking about Another book um, that he co-ed- co-edited with uh, Miroslav Wolf, titled "Joy and Human Flourishing: Essays on Theology, Culture, and the Good Life." So, to get started, Justin, I just wanted to s- you know, I when I was researching for this podcast, I came across an organization titled Yale, uh, the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, and. I started looking into it and saw that they also have a podcast and a website. and um, They have this, I think, very apt statement on joy on their website. It says something like, uh, Joy is fundamental to human existence and well-being, yet it is an elusive phenomenon that resists definition. So in other wo- words, joy, we all know we need the thing that we call joy and yet we find it difficult to actually define or describe what it is um, were you first were you part of this Yale uh, Center for faith and culture
1: I was absolutely um and uh, thank you very much for um, uh, for your introduction. I, just just one small addition here uh, that I have on my conscience: that chapter that you referred to, I didn't actually write it all myself. I actually co-wrote it with uh, with Miroslav and Matt, uh, so I don't want to take too much credit there. Um, but in any case, it, it was a joy to collaborate with with Matt and Miroslav on that chapter, and to collaborate with them and others at the Center for Faith and Culture. Um, I, in you know in the in the 2010s basically is when i was there so the the book that we're discussing today joy and human flourishing from 2015 emerged out of a consultation on joy that took place. And I think it was September of 2012. And I was a research assistant actually at the center working for Miroslav wolf at the time. And so the, the essays by Chuck Matthews, Jurgen Moltmann, Mary Maschella, and Marianne Thompson all came from that particular consultation. Um, and then the, the essays by N.T. Wright and by Miroslav himself came from a later Consultation uh, from a, a project funded uh, by the Templeton Foundation on the theology of joy. So the first the first four essays were from this consultation sponsored by the uh, the McDonald Agape Foundation, and then these other two. this later project. So the center has been working at the intersection of uh, theology and public life for for a long time uh, and has most recently been focused on the connection between joy, the good life, and human flourishing and uh, what it looks like to live as flourishing people in a society like ours. This was work that I was very fortunate to be a part of during my master's and doctoral degrees at Yale. Um, So I've been... I've been in full-time uh, parish ministry since the fall of 2018. Uh, at which time I, I stopped working at the center, although I'm still I feel very blessed to count uh, those folks uh, close friends and great collaborators. Um, so it was really, during the, the 2010s, that I was really uh, on the ground, as it were, and some of this work was was coming about around me. Uh, I got to participate in it, but it was really uh, is really the fruit of everyone's reflection.
0: Excellent. Yeah. So, from your experience, uh, wh- what would what are a couple of characteristics? You know, if if you were talking to somebody on an elevator about joy, um, or if they saw you with this book in hand uh, and they asked you, "What is joy?" What are a couple of characteristics of joy you would highlight in your conversation with them?
1: I love this question because it's the kind of thing that happens in uh, you know uh, in in ministry all the time right uh you're you're on a you're on an elevator or you're in the hallway and you get asked um a question about joy um i think that what i would say is i I would riff on something i once heard miroslav say which is that um uh happiness is like sprite and joy is like champagne um, I can't. I can't remember exactly what drink, uh, Miroslav compared happiness to, but I, I chose Sprite there. Um, joy has a kind of complexity to it, which happiness doesn't. They're similar, right? Uh, when we think of joy, we kind of assume it's high octane happiness. It's just happiness to the to the nth degree. But really, uh, if, if if we were right anyway, <laughs> at the Center for Faith and Culture. Um, Joy has a pretty complex emotional structure. So, Miroslav, in his essay for the book that we co-edited, said that joy joy always has an object of some kind. It's a um, it's always rejoicing about or over something, whether it's uh, the birth of a child or uh, you know an incredibly delicious meal or a new you know a breakthrough in your career or something like that it's it's a uh, it's always joy is not just in the is it's not just joy it, joy is not a freestanding emotion joy always has an object to it and in particular joy perceives that object as a blessing, as unowed, as a gift. So it's not simply that, you know, this meal is really delicious. It's that I somehow feel that the culinary delight of this meal or the fellowship that I'm enjoying around it is not owed to me, that it has a kind of surplus of blessing, that it is a gift, really a gift from God. So joy is an affective response to some part of your life, some part of the world which you experience as a blessing. Uh, And in that way is both more complex than happiness, just like champagne is more complex than, than Sprite. But also I think, uh, you know, more, it it has a kind of, um, it's more satisfying. It's more longer lasting. It's more, um, I mean, it's not exactly like champagne lasts forever either, but uh, there's a, there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of uh, sophistication to, to the phenomenon of tasting a really, really fine champagne that stays with you for a moment in a way that, you know, I don't know, I, maybe there are some real Sprite aficionados in your congregation, but I, I, I have a Sprite and then, you know, I go on to the next thing and I don't really remember it, but I can still remember the bottle of champagne that me and my wife had the night that we got engaged, right? Uh, anyway, that's, I think, where I would start.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Uh, Champagne or any alcohol for that, any good alcohol, has that effect Uh, on me as well. It it, it lingers for for a longer time. Uh, Okay, uh, so the next question, um, the book is titled Joy and Human Flourishing. So it seems like joy has a connection or relationship here with human flourishing or well-being. So can you maybe flesh out? Uh, what that relationship is for us.
1: Yeah. So if, if joy has an object and joy experiences that object as a blessing, then you're experiencing the object as a good. So the meal itself has to be good, right? It can't be, um, uh, you know, so, so like I, 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 I once made my wife, this recipe that I called balsamic chicken, what it turned out to be was tasteless stuff doused in vinegar. I mean, it was horrible, right? There was no joy involved in the eating of that meal. There was joy in our company, uh, you know. Um, perhaps you'll have to ask her, uh, but there, there was no joy over the chicken itself. Okay, and so in a in a in a in a much broader, more serious way, joy can be said to have that same kind of relationship to the good life. So this was actually a debate that we had um, during the consultation in 2012, out of which the book emerged. You know, can you feel joy properly over an evil? Can you properly rejoice over an evil? If you are rejoicing over an evil, are you really rejoicing at all? And uh, I I don't have a lot at stake, actually, in, in that particular in the particulars of that question, you know, does it count as joy if what you're rejoicing over is an evil? Um, there would, you know, some people like uh, like Saint Augustine would say, no, you can't actually. If if you're rejoicing over an evil, then well, whatever it is you're experiencing, it's not actually joy. Um, some others. Unlike Augustine, might say, "Well, it's joy, but it's just not good joy. It's not right joy, proper joy, etc." I think that's um, it's not just semantics, but it's it's not to the point here. I think the relationship between joy and the good life is joy is what the good life feels like. It's the it, it it's the fact that when our lives are you know to, to riff on language which Miroslav coined um, when life goes well. And when life is lived well, life also feels good. Which says something, I think, about, about the kind of God whom Christians purport to believe in. Uh, that the, the the living of a good life has a kind of, um, has a kind of, has a positive uprush of feeling to it. Um, it it's not, um, the good life is not like a ma- It's not like solving a math problem. Although I, I know that there are people who experience joy in math problems. That's that's not it. It's not like um, it's not like just adding up two and two and getting four. Instead, the good life. The good life feels good. Uh, the good life has its own um has its own kind of hedonic reward or a reward of of a of, of pleasure. Um, you know, I think that that's perhaps a place to start. Anyway,
0: yeah, yeah, I, I like the point where you where you emphasize that joy um, joy feels good. Uh, joy. There should be some sort of symmetry between um, a, a life that in how you perceive your life and and how you did also describe joy. Um, otherwise. Uh, You're kind of deceiving your own self, I guess, when you're describing joy. Um, So, in the introduction to these essays, you do, I think you do a fantastic job actually summarizing each essay. And um, I liked the one point that you made where you said that the life of Jesus in the New Testament is itself framed by joy. And so, you know, we're in the middle of Advent right now. And, um, a part of advent is celebrating the good news of jesus birth that was uh, that is to bring, to bring joy to all of the world the, the angels say um, in luke 2 and then also at the end of his life you know the writer of hebrews says that for the joy that was set before jesus he was able to endure the cross so we find joy both at the beginning and end of the life of uh, of our lord jesus how should this then impact the way we think about jesus
1: oh wow uh david that's a really great question because i have to say um i've been spending some time in the gospel of mark um you know so the, so the episcopal church uh follows the revised common lectionary and so in the three-year cycle uh you know one year is mark one year is Matthew, the other one's Luke, uh, we're just beginning the year of Luke, we just finished the year of Mark, and then they, they, they sprinkle the gospel of John in, in all three. Um, and I, I love the gospel of Mark, I love all of the gospels, John is my favorite, um, whatever that tells you about me, it's like a personality quiz for, uh, for Christians, which gospel is your favorite, John's my favorite, but um, it's not that I mind the others, but I have to say, uh, in none of them does Jesus seem to be an incredibly fun guy to be around. Um maybe that's a maybe that's a surprising thing to hear a priest say. Um you know, some exceptions to that would be, you know, like the wedding at Cana, which is, I have to say, it's one of my favorite stories. I mean, you know, it's like you're at the wedding reception and uh, you know, and and, and the party's about to end. And Jesus is like, nope, don't end the party, let's go. Now he does seem to, you know, he has to do it at his mother's behest, right? He kind of has to be talked into it, at least, you know, in the way we, we receive the story. But in any case, I'm I'm pleased that Jesus kept the party going. But other than, you know, like, other than a couple of those exceptions, Jesus can sound like an awfully dour guy. Uh, you know, it's um ah, you know. I turn the other cheek. This give up your coat. That I'm gonna come on clouds with power and great glory. There's gonna be a lot of earthquakes and so on and so forth. Um, He doesn't exactly tell any jokes, right? Um, My uncle has a. um, My uncle is a is a music minister in a Southern Baptist church, and he's he's a man of great of great holiness and insight. And my uncle John has a has a, as a print, which is his favorite. Uh, I think it's either hanging in his house or it's in his office at church. I, I can't remember. And it's Jesus laughing. And I love it. Uh, and I, I, I just love it because you don't get like, you know, um, and hear Jesus laughed and hear Jesus guffawed in like, you know, Luke chapter 12 or something like that. And yet, one does have to think that if in Christ the entirety of the human experience was experienced by the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Son, then surely things like laughter and mirth and that kind of thing would also have to be experienced. But, you know, when I, when I talk that way, I tend to think that what I'm wanting is for Jesus to be happy like I am. And I do think Jesus was happy from time to time. Perhaps the gospel writers don't make a big deal of it, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure there was plenty that Jesus didn't said that didn't make it, didn't make the cut, as it were. It didn't seem relevant to the task. Um, joy is a different matter. It's not just mirth, right? Joy would be something which characterizes Jesus' life from beginning to end, so far as... We always have the capacity of rejoicing in our relationship with God. And this is something which um, Marianne Thompson, N.T. Wright, Jurgen Moltmann, Miroslav, uh, Mary Michelle, and Chuck Matthews all made a big deal of in their essays. I think particularly Thompson and Wright. Um, even when we're in situations of exigent suffering, stress, strain, even physical incapacitation and torture. We have the ability, the capacity to rejoice in our enduring relationship with our God. And that is, is—that is, I think, something that we see in the life of Jesus. Um, now, what it means for Jesus to be able to rejoice at the same time as he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not quite sure about that. Uh, you know, it depends on how you understand that saying in Mark and Matthew. Um, when Jesus is, uh, you know, as, as you and your your uh, everyone listening to this podcast well knows, um, you know, in the crucifixion saying Jesus is is about to die, and it says, "Ili um, Lama quoting from the Psalms. Um, depends on what what how you understand that particular um, that particular happening um I tend to think that somehow mysteriously Jesus's human consciousness of uh, his relationship to the one he calls father as the divine son is somehow occluded it's like the clouds kind of kind of intervene between his human, consciousness and and the 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 son you know in this metaphor the son would be the father or something like that um and so perhaps jesus is not rejoicing at all there because that's the one point in his life where his human experience of his relationship with god you know quad just being god (laughs) just being god the son is somehow interrupted but everything else anyway and perhaps even in that moment, in some way, I'm just you know too dense to understand. Perhaps Jesus is actually feeling joy, too. You know, uh, Jesus he's feeling joy in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, you know, where he's struggling, and according to one of the Gospels, sweating blood. You know, over what is about to happen to him. Um, the thing that I love most about our faith is that it is a religion for real life because it is capable of taking on real life. And the command, uh, the injunction by St. Paul to rejoice always is not the invitation to, like, follow your bliss. It's instead to follow Jesus and the promise that God will always be with you and the truth that when God is with you, God gives you what you need, including the joy that you need to trudge on. This is, a, you know, um, this is the stuff which resilience and perseverance are made of, um, not the uh, not the avoidance. Of crosses, but rather, you know, the 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 strength to bear them, including the joy to bear them.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, Yeah, that's hard to think about how Jesus was able to still experience God's presence during those moments of um, utter hopelessness, you could say, almost um, at the in the garden, and then at the cross, and Jürgen Moltmann, I love that name, by the way. <laughs> and he he starts starts the essays in this book off, and he wrote a theology of joy some fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe one of the one of the only theologians who's really given joy that uh, primacy of place. And you know, the, he talks about then he was more interested in uh, being able to rejoice in a strange land, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, picking up all the, the psalmist there and in this particular essay he's focused on uh, rejoicing in God's presence um, in the broad place of God's presence as he puts it um, another thing he mentions is that Christianity is a unique religion of joy and at the same time you know, he, he says that the primary symbol of Christianity is the cross and the cross is an instrument of suffering of pain of you know everything that represents uh unjoy and so how does this seeming contradiction between re- christianity being a religion of joy and its symbol being the cross how does these how do these two go together and what what does this tell us about joy
1: and yeah, that's really good i think that um So I'm tempted to say that, you know, the cross, Christianity being a religion of the cross and Christianity being a religion of joy are just a contradiction. And you hope it's a productive contradiction, but it's just a contradiction. It's just like, you know, the cross and the resurrection, they're just contradictions. One of them has to cancel it out. In the end, I think the resurrection cancels out the cross, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. but I, I think that's just a temptation. What I what I actually would want to do is to wrestle with how the cross and the resurrection are of a peace with one another. And how Christianity being a religion of the cross and a religion of joy are of a peace with one another. I think there's something about um, the clear-eyed orientation to the evils of suffering, which is inherent to Christian faith, that... Disposes it actually to attend to joy rather than happiness as its kind of affective or emotional crown. Um, You know, Christianity is not at its heart, as I understand it, um, not a religion of happiness, but a religion of joy. Happiness, as I've been thinking about it, you know, I think happiness probably also has, um, happy, happiness also feels good. Happiness also has an object, right? You're happy that something happened. Um, although, you know, perhaps there are forms of elation that are just like, you know, you just feel elated. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm open to that, too. Um, but ha- all that really seems to be required for happiness is that things are going your way right If I'm happy that I got a promotion or I'm happy that I went out and you know bought the coffee maker that I wanted or um, you know all that that seems to require is that um, my will and my world are in sync with one another. And whenever my will and my world aren't in sync with one another, then I'm not happy. I'm unhappy. It means that my the world is not going with the grain of my will, and my will is not going with the grain of my world. Christianity presupposes that for a very great deal of one's life, the world and one's will are not going to be in sync. They're going to go against the grain of each other. And perhaps even calls us to go against the grain of the world from time to time, or you know, to at least be suspicious of our wills when they go with the grain of the world. Um, and joy is compatible with things with which happiness is incompatible. So for instance, um, Thompson, speaks about what she calls joy notwithstanding. She says there are two kinds of joy: joy because of something and joy notwithstanding, <laughs> suffering, evil, etc. So if you if you take Moltmann, actually, for an example, I mean, Jürgen Moltmann is an inc- a man of incredible holiness, uh, really, really incredible. You know, some people you meet, uh, David, who are just the real deal, and you can, uh, it's like they're a living embodiment of the joy of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Moltmann is it, um, and you know, uh, not not to tell the whole story. Um, uh, you know, uh, Motman himself—you, you can, you can look up uh, you can find videos on YouTube of him telling him stories. Some of them in conversation with Miroslav, in interviews for the Center, or, or in his writings. Um, you know, uh, Moltmann himself came to a living relationship with the God of Jesus Christ in a situation of incredibly exigent suffering. He was—he was a prisoner of war in a prison camp. And he said that he had an, he had an experience of the suffering God, the God of the cross, there. So if you just if you just take that case right, the case of a of a of a prisoner of war, there is joy to be had, actually, by dint of the fact that the God of the cross is actually with you, that that Christ is with you in your suffering in that circumstance you can have joy notwithstanding the fact that you're in a prison camp etc and yet that is not a situation with which i think you could ever be happy right because <laughs> that would just seem odd to say well i'm happy to be in this prison camp and yet it's not it doesn't seem to be odd to say i have joy even though i am in this prison camp um and perhaps even in some mysterious way that N.T. Wright um, speculates about, we can have joy even in our sufferings, so far as they share in the sufferings of Christ. It's not exactly that we are um, saying that the sufferings are good in and of themselves, but so far as they participate in Christ's suffering, so far as they, um, so far as they're caught up in His, perhaps their moments of intimacy with him, or perhaps even somehow, uh, this is a controversial statement, I don't know what I think of it exactly, but some theologians would say this, Um, like Balthazar, for instance, you know, even participate, our suffering somehow participate in Jesus's sufferings, and so also in the salvation of the world, which he affects thereby we can have it, joy even in our sufferings. It'd be very, very weird to say that happiness, you know, that you could substitute the word happy there for joy. Um, so I think there's actually there's something about the forthrightness with which Christians address suffering that lends us to focus on joy rather than happiness. And so perhaps that's perhaps that's the more organic connection between them.
0: Yeah. So um so you mentioned both Thompson and Wright there and uh I you know, I love N.T. Wright, by the way. <laughs> I love his his works and I think he's been uh, just a tremendous help uh, to the church uh through his writings and talks and etc. And I also like uh Marianne Mae Thompson. I was introduced to her just a couple years ago, um, Johannine theologian, and you know, she she made a good point. You know, we're talking about joy, uh, a response, and joy uh, despite of the circumstances. Um, and I think both her and her and Wright kind of overlap in their essays because, in a way, joy they both say um, is a res- is a response to what God does. You know, joy mm-hmm. is not something that we that we have to manufacture, but rather joy is a fresh act of God. And, like, for example, the psalmist in Psalm 126 will say that, you know, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion's, then our mouth was filled with joy. Um, so, in that sense, joy is both a response to what God does, and yet joy, because of what God has already done, is able to endure through... Uh, circumstances to sort of resist its its very definition almost. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, uh, how how does joy sort of how, how can it give us that security that that despite the external circumstances uh, that may that may resist against um what we're thinking and feeling how does joy remain grounded if you will does that make sense
1: yeah it does it does it does um i'm inclined to say that one has to practice um but then that then i i I kind of trip over over that um that intuition because um a joy is a fresh act of god as you know as thompson and wright say um and really the whole point of joy is to recognize a good As unowe,d one, you know. So the kind of work that it involves is complicated. Um, It's not that we're not involved in our own rejoicing at all. Um, Chuck Matthews says in his essay is kind of in the middle voice. It's something which happens to us, and yet which we also participate in. Um, And I, I I also think it is, you know, it's possible to it's possible to rejoice in a way that isn't extremely obvious or ebullient or um, visible to others. Um, Again, joy is not happiness. So just because one's not smiling, doesn't mean that one is not rejoicing somehow. Um, If I was, so let's say we're let's say we're not on a podcast. We're not we're not talking about theology. We're we're um uh we're we're doing um I don't mean to draw such a hard distinction between talking about theology and doing theology. What I'm really after is, you know, if you were if you were sitting in my office and you were, you know, you were asking me how how can I feel more joy in my day-to-day life? I am joyless, I need it and I want it, and I don't know how to get it. I would ask you to ask God for it. Um, I don't actually know that human beings are capable of manufacturing the kind of persevering joy, which is, I think, the secret to a living a flourishing human life in a world like ours, which is um, which has been rendered defective by sin. Um, We can, I think, open ourselves to the possibility of the grace of that joy and we can close ourselves to the possibility of the grace of that joy, Mm -hmm. but we cannot, we can't magic it by fiat of our wills. I think we can ask for it. and I think that the kind of joy that we experience in our spiritual lives is variable, depending on where we are in our spiritual lives. I mean, I'm uh, since working on this project, um, I became I became um, more familiar with and more devoted to the writings of. The 16th century Carmelites Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, and you know these are these are two theologians who say there's a great deal of unhappiness, perhaps as I defined it before, um, a great deal of unhappiness, which is um, part and parcel of the spiritual life at certain stages. You know, moments like um, what John calls the dark night of the soul, or moments when um, one no longer feels the presence of God. And John always counsels that um, the truth is that God is actually quite close to you in those moments when you think God is not there. That it's actually those moments where you experience the abandonment of one of yourself by God that you are, in some ways, most close to Him. Um, because you're having some kind of a, you're, you're, you're sharing somehow in the mystery of the cross. Um, is that, that, in, that in and of itself, um, that recognition, that counsel that John consistently gives to say, like, you're actually okay, <laughs> right? I mean, when you're in a dark night, I mean, gosh, it's just miserable. Uh, you know, your prayer doesn't work. You're, you know, you're, uh, it doesn't feel good. Every, the Bible is dry as dust. It may even be painful. For you, you know, uh, you might have such a longing for God and for the closeness with God that you once experienced that you know it, 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 it's physically painful to you, and so you know John's counsel to remember you're actually okay. What's going on here is that God is very, 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 very close to you. You're still in communion with God. God is still there. Just don't trust your feelings. <laughs> right and feelings are different than joy joy is not just a feeling joy is at least an emotion perhaps even a kind of spiritual disposition if you if you will um i think that just recognizing that god is still there can actually be the seed of joy in a moment not just of physical or psychological or emotional suffering but even spiritual suffering which is what john's talking about there um i find That when I am in those places, to be reminded by somebody whom I trust that God is actually still at work in my life, that God has not actually abandoned me, that what I am undergoing is in some ways a moment of profound intimacy with God, I all of a sudden feel lighter. And I think the lightness of it is joy. Even if it's not, it's not that I start smiling. It's not that my prayer immediately becomes satisfying again. It's just that I don't feel it's, like, it's 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 like chains have been chains that I've been wearing around my heart are just unlocked and they fall away.
0: Yeah, that's that's so good. Um, yeah, it's it's a mystery. Um, I think uh, at the end of the day, I think there is a lot of things that we have to re- resign to mystery, and uh, it almost seemed with N.T. Wright that he said that. You know, riffing off of Romans five through eight, one's sufferings are almost a signpost po- or indicator that that you're actually on the right path. Like you're 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 actually experiencing the birth pains of new creation, maybe. Um, and yeah, it, it's 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 incredibly hard. But the assurance, I guess, of the resurrection and uh, what lies on the other side, um, I think, is uh, just tremendously encouraging and needed in those situations. Uh, One important characteristic of joy, which I actually discovered in reading this book, was that joy has political and social ramifications. Mm -hmm. So if joy is the vision of the good life, then... Whatever is not the good life, you know, um, should be something that is that we protest against. And and Moltman says this. I, I love what Willie Jennings, who who didn't contribute an essay but did, I think, at this uh, consultation, contribute an essay. He says something about how joy is an act of resistance against the forces of despair. So why is why is that so important to emphasize this aspect of joy, uh, which? which you know I I never knew uh before reading this book.
1: Mm. That, that's a that's a really great question. Um you know one of the things that I came to the study of joy with was a suspicion of it. Um you know I it, it Okay, I'll be honest. Let me let me be let me be honest with the um with the good people of um of a, you know, city church. Um, <laughs> I was introduced to joy because I was a research assistant at the center working for Miroslav and um, it was my job to pick up the organization of this consultation from my friend, Chris Corbin who had just uh, graduated um, from Yale Divinity School and uh, had, had done much of the legwork for this consultation and I, I needed to finish it up. Uh, I didn't choose joy, right? Um, and in fact, I participated in the conversations. I, I listened um, to the conversations with, a, um, you know, with, with openness but also quite a bit of skepticism. Um, I thought, you know, joy isn't serious enough to really grapple with the immense social, political, economic problems of our moment. Um, in addition, joy seemed to be just a way to distract people from what was what might be wrong with their world um, rather than inspiring them to resist whatever is wrong with their world. I didn't want it to be an opiate um, in the you know in the, in the sense that um, uh, Karl Marx uses that term um, this is crucial to Marx's critique of religion. I didn't want it to be something which distracted people from real life. And the conclusion that I came to was that, um, you know, through that joy is actually not an escape from real life. Joy is entrance into real life, it is entrance into deeper, truer life. Joy has a kind of um, it's oriented to the magnetic pole of the good as it were. And it's kind of like a compass. What one truly and deeply rejoices over, one's rejoicing over as good. And one prays that one is rejoicing over actual good. Um, and that You know, the fact that you're rejoicing over X, but not rejoicing over Y, you just cannot bring yourself to rejoice over Y, is a kind of symptom of the fact that Y is disordered in some way, incongruous with God's ideals um, and will. And in addition, you can rejoice still. Notwithstanding why, notwithstanding whatever is in Congress in our world, with God's will, um, in the ways that we've just been describing, you know, it, it doesn't matter if what you're talking about is uh, is disease or oppression. The same could be true of each, which is that you have you have a um, you have a capacity for rejoicing in the vital relationship you have with your God and Father through Jesus Christ, which endures throughout any worldly circumstances come what may. Um, so that can sustain and fund actually, can give you the energy that you need to be about resisting whatever it is that is keeping you or your world, your community from life, whether it's political or otherwise. Um, so it's both a kind of joy is both a kind of um, a kind of uh, discernment mechanism for the good, a way of testing the spirits, as it were, um, and also gives you <laughs> gives you a storehouse of perseverance that can actually get you from A to B in the struggle for good, truth, and beauty in a world which is very often ugly, false, and evil. Um, Yeah, I think I think that's what I would say at this at this stage in my um at this stage in 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 my life. Um, I'll say that as a priest, um, you know, my heart goes out to you and to 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 all the members of your congregation and and to the the, the people whom you serve um, because we have all been through a very great trial. We are still undergoing a great very great trial. I, I do not know anybody in any walk of life whose life has not been touched in an incredibly powerful and painful way by the pandemic. And as we all collectively continue to bear this cross, um, I suspect that joy is not a distraction. It's not a way to just numb us to the suffering of the pandemic in all its manifestations. It's actually, it could actually be very key to helping us um, sort out the good from the bad and also to helping us to persevere through it.
0: Hmm. It's well said. Okay, so uh, switching gears, I know we're already coming up in 45 minutes here. So I want to just go through a couple more questions. And uh, Charles Matthews whose essay you probably need a dictionary uh, just to understand. Uh, but yeah, he, he he mentions this wonderful statement. Uh, he says that churches, which we are, <laughs> churches are a matter of preparing humans for the joy that is our eschatological destiny. So essentially our future glory um which is our eschatological destiny um is somehow worked out here in uh, in the church. The church is the very training grounds, the 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 stage where we can cultivate joy. So maybe, what in your experience are some some tips or you know whatever practical um, suggestions that you have for how our church can cultivate joy.
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a that's a really good question. Also, I love I love the fact that um uh, you said you need a dictionary to read um to read Chuck Matthews essay. I yeah yes absolutely. Chuck's an incredibly uh, incredibly brilliant man, um and and also uh, a, a man of great holiness and devotion. Um and I have to say a man of great joy. Uh, chuck is tons and tons and tons of fun i mean he's just he's just a, um he, he's he, he's a joy to be around you know there are some people whose joy is infectious uh chuck is one of them um so anyway uh you know my mind has changed about this over the years actually um how churches can train people in joy um you know i i would like to say okay now, i I'm not going to say that. I'm going to start all over. My mind has changed. I used to think that what churches did was somewhat like choreographing a life. So in liturgy and worship, in the liturgical calendar, in rituals of baptism and Eucharist, we went through particular ritual acts and actions which cultivated in us kinds of virtuous dispositions and ways of being with each other, which were also true outside worship, outside the church, outside liturgy. Um, So for example, you know, um, the Eucharist. Uh, The Eucharist, um, in the Eucharist, we break and share in the bread and the wine and there's something about you know the giving and receiving of the bread and the wine that trains us in habits of giving and receiving, which then you know make us want to give and receive more joyfully and generously in the rest of the world. And that's how the you know that's how like you know the the politics of the Eucharist spill over into the politics in, into the politics of the market, something like that. And and I have to say I yeah maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I think that the power of the church is that God shows up on the regular. (laughs) God is the interesting thing about the church, not the choreography, not the giving and receiving. I mean, you know, the the interesting thing about the Eucharist is not that we're breaking and sharing bread, you know, like we're passing around breadsticks at the Olive Garden. It's like, it's the fact that, is the fact that we ex- we have an experience of God in the doing of those things, um, in in the Anglican tradition anyway? We um, uh, and understand that this is not consensus among all, among all Christians, but um, speaking as an Anglican, we believe that God is really present in the bread and the wine, and that's what's remarkable about it: is God is there. Um, and I think, regardless of whether one locates God's presence. In the sacraments or how one locates God's presence in the sacraments. The reason why we go to church is not because um, it's not because it makes us good people. It's because we meet the Lord of heaven and earth there in worship, in prayer, in one another, in scripture, in the proclamation of the word, et cetera, in the sacraments, blah, blah, blah. We meet God and by meeting God, yeah, by grace, we become better. Um, I think the church father, Gregory of Nyssa, who said that, um, I'm not getting the quote exactly right, I'm I'm riffing, but it's something like the the whole point of Christianity is to become something better than what you already are. but one becomes better, not because churches come up with a great elaborate program for like how to train people in joy. People get better because they meet Jesus. And so I would say that um why, why why what should churches do to the proclamation of the word and the celebration of the sacraments and gathering around gathering around those things, such that when two or more are gathered, the Lord is present. And if that's the case, if the Lord is present, then what we've been talking about the whole time is that when the Lord is present, there is joy. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's it.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's that's good. Yeah, you're right. It's not. It's not up to really our strategizing or our coming up with a sophisticated program, but it's the fact that we encounter God. We encounter the God of the whole earth, yeah. Um, so, maybe one one last question. I'm trying to debate on whether I go with Mary Clark Michela or uh, Miroslav Wolf. We've talked about Wolf a little bit, actually. So, um, but Mary Clark Michela gives us I actually loved her chapter, by the way, because the way she defines or describes joy as aliveness and attentiveness to the goodness of God uh, just rings true in my life. And, and she points out two important ways that happens, vocation and compassion. And for vocation, I mean, vo- vocation, I can resonate th- with that because I, when I feel alive at work or Whatever it is that I'm just immersed in um that to me is an experience of joy and and I don't have to stop and think about it and describe it to you it's just a it's just a it's a reality it's a feeling it's a um it is the that emotional substance that wolf wolf says but for compassion she gives this story um about this guy named Paul farmer. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that story and what it teaches us about joy.
1: Mm. So uh, a farmer is... The founder of an organization called Partners in Health, which um, advocates for public health initiatives on a grand scale, and compats poverty in um, a, you know in the two thirds or the developing world, and in Farmer's own life, joy is as I understand um, Mary and Michelle had to be arguing joy is both that kind of barometer to the good and is also the means by which he perseveres in the doing of what is incredibly uh difficult work and it guides him um, in the uh you know in living a life of um living this life of compassion and vocation um you know farmer is farmer is a very captivating figure um i'm always entranced by people who seem to have an otherworldly sense of purpose. Um, which I think is, is a part of what Michelle is getting at with vocation. Um, I have to say, it's a rather odd conversation. It's a rather odd um, question to answer now. Not, not odd in your asking of the question, but it's it's hard to answer. I'm aware that, you know, we are currently living through um, the Great Resignation, I think, is what I either saw in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Um, you know, uh, just loads and loads and loads of people are quitting or changing jobs here in the in a, what I pray are the latter days of the pandemic. Burnout is incredibly common across the board. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. I mean, you know, in in my own congregation here in a in the New York City suburbs um the the same thing is holding true um you know i i I don't i don't exactly have loads of people lining up in my office saying that you know they've quit their job and they're moving to something else but i do have plenty of people who are saying my job is dry my job is a desert my job is and i think what they've discovered is that their job is not their vocation um and vocation is not always lived out through one's job that is that is true vocation is not the same thing as a job For somebody like Paul Farmer, it very well may be, you know, because Paul Farmer's vocation is to be Paul Farmer, and he does it basically 24-7, 365, and, uh, you know, and and that's captivating and powerful, but I'm actually, I'm as much interested in, you know, the person who is burnout working a nine-to-five in a cubicle And how they find joy and purpose, as I have about Paul Farmer, because I think that most of us in most of our lives are more like that guy in the cubicle than we are like Paul Farmer. And I would include myself there, you know, being a priest or being a pastor. Sure, you can ask your own pastors. It can also be a desert. It can also be brutal. Um, And here, you know, it's hard to know exactly what to say. It's hard to know exactly what to say without knowing the particulars of the lives of whoever it is that's listening to this podcast. Um, Except to say what I I believe to be true of every human being, which is that um, I believe that whoever it is that's listening here, that God, um, you know, just for for me to speak directly to you, I'm going to pretend I'm not looking at David here on the Zoom screen. Uh, God loves you. And God's will for your life is that it would be full. God did not create you to be miserable. God created you for joy. And whatever difficulty, whatever misery currently afflicts your life, whether it's a crisis of vocational discernment or some kind of physical or mental illness or financial burden or stress, I don't exactly have counsel or advice for you. What I have instead is a prayer, that the power of our Lord's resurrection would somehow shine in your life, shine into your life, rush up in your life in the season of Advent, a season of expectation for that redemption. Um, And that by the power of that resurrection, you might find more joy, whether that joy comes in the shape of a new job, or the same old job, with you know, made bearable, or the same old job made newly meaningful, or in perseverance or healing through disease, or perseverance or remedy through financial strain, or what have you. Um, the catastrophes of human life are many, and the goodness of God is infinite um and there is great joy in that and and joy to be joy to be had um so if you're not paul farmer don't sweat it it'll be all right <laughs> um you know uh, like john of the cross says the people who are um who are in the dark night of the soul you are profoundly okay um i want I, you know maybe this is a good place to end um I once heard a paper by um, by an Anglican theologian named Graham Ward in response to some of the work that the center was doing um, around human flourishing. And um, I'm, I'm gonna do a very, very um, unfair job of summarizing Graham Ward's incredibly um, erudite and sophisticated paper. But basically what he said and what I took away was he said, I am these days, as much interested in what helps people to get by as I am, what helps people to flourish. And he said that that came from his experience of pastoral ministry as a priest in the Church of England. And I have to say, that's where I am too. Um, and so, you know, wherever it is that we might be, um, perfect may or may not actually be on the vocational or the life menu. Um, and joy. Joy can be um, a fund for merciful perseverance as much as it is for like living your best life now. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Justin. I, I do think that's uh, just a wonderful word of encouragement uh, to end this podcast. And thank you for accepting the invitation to talk about joy. And uh, I'm sure that all of our listeners will be greatly helped by a conversation. And so, um, yeah, I wish you the best, and um, God bless.
1: Thank you so much, David. I wish you and, and all your people a happy and blessed Advent. Uh, please know my prayers for you, and, and please please play, pray for me and the people whom I serve here at St. Mark's. And-
0: we will, thank you. Yes, thank you for reminding me, Justin. Well, take care, and God bless.